So, Lord, bless this time in the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this section of Isaiah, keep in mind that Isaiah here, that he, as he's speaking the words of the Lord, that he's speaking to Judah primarily in this last part of Isaiah. Uh, in the first part of Isaiah, there was a message to both Judah and to Israel. But Israel, the ten northern tribes, have been taken off into captivity. And we saw the Assyrians come and surround Jerusalem. And in chapter 37 of Isaiah, of course, an angel came and destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And so so the Assyrians are declining in power and the Babylonians are going to rise to power. And here it is, Isaiah, nearly 100 years before Babylon comes in and takes Judah away. He is prophesying and he is saying, you're going to go off into captivity. You're going to, to be taken away because of your sin and disobedience, because uh, of your idol worship. And of course, we saw that in chapter 52, it begins by awake, awake, put your strength, O Zion, and put on beautiful garments. And you see, even though these words are given of warning to Judah, and it's a loving father that is pleading with his people, turn to me. Why are you worshiping these idols? Matter of fact, uh, as he is indicting them, he says that you have sold yourselves for nothing. You've sold yourselves over to these idols and false worship. You've sold yourselves for nothing. I am the one that has redeemed you. I am the creator. I am God and there is no other. I am the one that stretched forth the heavens. I created the earth and I have redeemed you, chosen you to myself. And he's pleading with them. Remember who I am. I'm the one that declares the end from the beginning. Those idols can't do that. They have, you know, ears and nose and mouths, but they can't speak, they can't smell, they can't hear. You prop them up, they're a burden on your carts. They cannot help you. They're absolutely worthless. And you've sold yourselves for nothing. What people will sell themselves out for in this world and end up being in captivity and bondage to sin and worldliness and so the loving father here, don't picture him as an angry father, but a loving father that's saying, please turn back to me. And there's hope. And the Lord doesn't leave them without any hope. And he talks about how they were in Egypt and in bondage, but he had the power to deliver them. And same with the Assyrians. He sent one angel to deal with the Assyrians. And, and my people shall know my name, and they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. So as here Isaiah is talking about uh, the Lord that is pleading with his people to come back to him, there's a message of hope. There's a message that there is going to be one that's going to come. He is the Messiah that's been spoken of, and he's going to come for you, and he's going to come for sinful humanity. And how beautiful are the mountains that are the feet of him who brings this good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news. And the good news that we have to give to others is that Jesus Christ has come and he died for your sins and he rose again and he is the savior of the world and there is none other and as you come to him there's power in the gospel for a man and a woman to be forgiven to have the hope of eternal life to have relationship with the father and become a new creation a new heart being born again by the spirit of God 
That's the good news that we have to give to others. And he goes on in verse 8, Your watchmen shall lift up their voices, and with their voices they shall sing together. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion, and break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people and has redeemed Jerusalem. So keep in mind that Isaiah, he, all of a sudden he's talking about one subject, and in the next uh, verse he'll begin to talk about another subject. He, he talks about the suffering Messiah and some of the verses here, particularly as we get to the end of the chapter. And then he's going to talk about the reigning Messiah. Now here's the thing that in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, they had a hard time reconciling, okay, the, the prophets of old, the Old Testament, that they spoke of a suffering Messiah, just as what we're going to read, and also speaks of a reigning Messiah, that he's going to come and redeem Jerusalem. The near fulfillment would be when they came back to Jerusalem after the captivity was over. In 536 B.C., Cyrus, who we have seen listed and named here in the book of Isaiah as God's instrument would give that decree that you can go back to 70 years of captivity or over. Uh, he was the king of the Medes and the Persians that would take over Babylon. You can rebuild your temple, and that's what they did. And we know that Isaiah is so precise in these prophecies that are given here. It's absolutely amazing. That's why liberal scholars will come along and say, well, it had to be an Isaiah that wrote these things after Jesus' death on the cross. Because we're going to see as we get in the Isaiah 53, the description of Jesus, you know, that was like the lamb that was led to the slaughter. Um, in chapter 52, his, he was marred more than any other man. So uh, all these specific prophecies of Cyrus, you know, it had to be written well after all these events happened. Well, we know that the Dead Sea Scrolls disproves all of that because they found a scroll of Isaiah, all 66 chapters, same 66 chapters that you have in your Bible, dated 200 B.C., 200 years before Jesus came on the scene. And as Peter would say that that prophecy didn't come by the will of man or any private interpretation, but, but holy men of God as the Holy Spirit moved through them. You know, one of the things that gives me assurance that this book is true from beginning to end is prophecy. Very specific prophecy fulfilled to the very letter, every prophecy concerning Jesus' first coming, which was over a hundred prophecies, fulfilled every dot and tittle of it. And we know that the prophecies concerning his second coming are going to be fulfilled, which are over 200 prophecies. So Jesus Christ is going to come back. And the ultimate fulfillment that we're reading about here is that in verse 9, break forth into joy, sing together for you waste places of Jerusalem. The Lord has comforted his people, redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our Lord. That's speaking ultimately when the Lord comes back. And then he will rule over the nations with a rod of iron, as Psalm chapter 2 declares to us. But this salvation of God was to be extended to the Gentiles and, and, and to the nations. 
So Jesus Christ is going to come back and rule and reign, but he would come as the religious leaders were thinking, okay, there's the reigning Messiah, there's the suffering Messiah, how's that going to work? And some of them thought if Israel was not worthy enough, if they were in sin, the suffering Messiah would come, but if Israel was worthy enough, then the reigning Messiah would come, and that's why one of the reasons why the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were so determined that the people kept the law of God, and particularly when it came to the Sabbath. And they believed that if everyone kept the Sabbath perfectly, that the reigning Messiah would come. So the main contention that the Pharisees particularly had with Jesus, as you read the gospel narratives, was over what? was over keeping of the Sabbath. And, and they didn't understand that there would be two comings of Messiah. That there was the suffering Messiah and then the reigning Messiah. Some of them thought maybe there was two Messiahs that were going to come. So here Isaiah, as he writes about the reigning Messiah, and I like what verse 8, you watchmen shall lift up their voices, and with their voices they shall sing together. When the Lord comes back, the watchman, now you know what the watchman is, particularly when you get to Ezekiel. Ezekiel mentions the watchman, the watchman on the wall. In the ancient cities in Jerusalem, they would be surrounded with a wall, and the watchman would be up on top, and he would look out, and he would, would sound the alarm if any danger was coming. And Ezekiel has it in that context. Here, when the Lord comes back, the watchman is going to be lifting up their voices. No more danger. Jerusalem's going to be redeemed. Righteousness is going to cover the earth as waters cover the sea. And, and the watchman's going to be singing. But you and I, we are watchmen. Do you know that? We are watchmen. And you and I are to give the good news to others. We are to warn others that are linked to us in our lives of those things that will cause danger. Listen, I want you to hear my heart. Whenever that we go through the word of God and it is the Lord that is saying, don't get involved in sin, don't do these things, and, and I'm giving the word of God and we're going through it and we see it in God's word, it isn't to make your life boring or to be a killjoy. God is trying to be, or we're being legalistic, is we're being watchmen. I'm to be a watchman to give warning what God's word declares to you, that sin's going to hurt and take you into captivity. Of impending danger if you're going to pursue the world and the world's pleasures and the carnality of the world. So here in the time of the reigning of the Lord, it's going to be a time of, of singing and glad tidings and good things. You want glad tidings? You want peace in your life? They not only believe in the gospel, but live in the gospel. And living for the Lord. And then in verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Interesting that we saw that in the previous chapter, in chapter 51, and then in chapter 52. Uh, in chapter 51, there was three, listen to me, and then there was three, awake, awake, and the chapter started out by saying, awake, 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 wake up. And now we see depart, depart. Whenever the Lord repeats himself, you know, listen to me, awake, awake, depart, depart, he's like he's saying, this is really important. 
Right, parents, we repeat things to our children. Why do we do it? Because we want them to understand. We want them to hear. We, we know that it's important. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. You know, and the Lord is saying to us through Isaiah, awake, because he's already indicted the Lord, his people in spiritual sleepiness. That they become sluggish. He's saying, awake, awake, wake, look what's going on around you. Pay attention to what the Lord is saying. And then he says to part, to part. And it's a word for us as he is saying this in uh, verse 11, that the part, leave Babylon behind. Don't take it with you. When you come back and, and Jerusalem is redeemed, leave those idols in the false worship. That's what they're being told. And we are to leave the world behind. Don't walk in the fleshly desires, but in the spirit. We've been brought out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So why would you want to go back to the darkness? Depart from that. Depart from the worldly things is what we're being told tonight. For you shall not go out with haste, verse 12, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And so they left Egypt, of course, in their history. They, when they did, they had to leave in haste, as you read the book of Exodus. Now, when they would leave Babylon, Cyrus let them go freely. Um, he would make the decree that you can go back. But God is our rear guard. He has our backs as he uh, is leading us and uh, preparing a way for us. And then as chapter uh, 52, verses 13, through the end of the chapter, it really goes with chapter 53 because it begins to speak, Isaiah changing subjects now, he begins to speak about the suffering servant or Messiah. Verse 13, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted, extolled, and be very high. Uh, literally, that word extolled means to be lifted up is what it means in Hebrew. And that might ring a bell with you. That Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 39, that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You remember that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, and Jesus told him that you must be born again, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God. That was the first must. The second must is that Nicodemus, the son of man, must be lifted up just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. And, and I imagine Nicodemus, who was called the master teacher of Israel by Jesus, familiar with the Old Testament, familiar with that story that Jesus made reference to there in the book of Numbers when the people sinned and, and, and these poisonous snakes came into the camp and were biting them. And so they're crying out to Moses and Moses interceding said, Lord, what are we going to do? Help the people. The Lord said, put that, that serpent on a pole and stick it up on a pole and anyone who looked at it would be healed. And Jesus is saying, just as Moses lifted that serpent up, that, that serpent on a pole there in the wilderness because they were being bitten by snakes and dying. So the Son of Man must be lifted up, Nicodemus. And Jesus was saying, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross because every single one of us have been bitten by the snake of sin. And we have death and sin coming into the world, even as Ephesians chapter 2 declares. But we were dead in our trespasses. But our God, who is great in his love and his great mercy towards us, has made us alive 
because of what Jesus Christ. And as we look at Jesus on that pole hanging there, lifted up, and as we come in faith, then we have life that comes to us, eternal life. Nicodemus, I must be lifted up. And Nicodemus would come to understand that because you see that Nicodemus was there taking care of the body of Jesus along with Joseph of Arimathea, the two secret disciples of Jesus. He came to understand, of course, the suffering Messiah that would be lifted up on the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Hey, we want to give a message to our culture. What's the message? For every generation, for every culture, for every man or every woman, Jesus was lifted up for you. That's the message. And Jesus said, I will draw all men to myself. The gospel. That's the message, the central message that we are to give to others. The message of good news, of glad tidings, of peace. That Jesus was lifted up for us. And, and keep Jesus central is what we are to do. And in verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Uh, that, that word visage uh, means appearance. Uh, he was marred more than any other man. And we've talked about that because uh, there in chapter 50, we saw, speaking of Jesus, he said that I gave my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. Jesus would go through a series of six trials when he was arrested in the garden. He went through three religious trials before Annas and then two before the Sanhedrin council. The servant of Annas struck Jesus that would really begin the sufferings of Jesus. And then the Sanhedrin Council, 70 members of the religious leaders of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, along with the high priest, beat Jesus up. How would you like to be jumped by 70 men? They put a bag over his head and they punched him out. He would then begin a series of six or, or three trials, three religious trials, three civil trials, um, as he would go before Pilate and then before Herod and then before Pilate again. And during that time, he was handed over to the Romans where they also beat him, put a crown of thorns around his head. They pulled out his beard. They put a cat of nine, tile, uh, cat of nine tails on him, that uh, flagellum, that, that scourging that he endured by the Romans and that cat of nine tails would be a leather strip with little pieces of leather strip coming from the main strip with a piece of, of metal on the end of it and it would grab a hold of your skin and just rip whole chunks out of your back and on the front side. He was reduced to raw hamburger. He was unrecognizable is what we're being told here marred more than any other man. That's why Pilate, I believe, right before he's taken away to take the cross to Calvary, that Pilate says to the people, the man, behold the man, look at him. Look what you've done to him. Look what they've done to him. Unrecognizable. I don't think we can fully understand what they did to Jesus. You know, John, in, in his vision of Jesus there in Revelation chapter 5, that he sees as one that was slain like a lamb, that when we get to heaven, if we do see Jesus in, in those marks, uh, 
of his that, that maybe we'll get more of an understanding. But, but he was marred. He was butchered. He was beaten. His beard pulled out. His scalp completely lacerated with that crown of thorns. And he did it for you. He did it for you. And he went to the cross for you and for me because of his love for us. You know, sometimes, particularly when we get around Easter time, you get all these articles and debates, you know, who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? You know, like he fell into you know, um, unfortunate circumstances and it was died unjustly. Yeah, he died unjustly, but he died freely. It's the whole reason why he came. He said, my hour has now come to die for sinful humanity. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, guys. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and elders. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again after three days. It was determined that Jesus would come and die for you and for me even before we were born. To give us hope, forgiveness. And what he went through, we can't fully understand. And I think that we're going to marvel at it and just be amazed by it and marvel at his grace for all eternity, we will. So his visage, his appearance marred more than any other man in the form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. I like verse 15 again, the subject changing to when he's going to come and he's going to rule and reign. Sprinkling here often is associated with cleansing. Jesus is going to cleanse the nations when he comes. And it says that kings shall shut their mouths at him. In other words, they are not going to have a say. Now, to me, that's good news. We got an election coming up, don't we, next month? And boy, there's a lot of stuff out there about, you know, who's going to be in power. And we, you know, I'm like any of you guys. I can get concerned. I read. I wonder who's going to be in power. What's going to happen? You know, we, we, we get upset. All these things that have been going on. And what brings me comfort is knowing that is that Jesus Christ sits on the throne. And he's the one that sets those in authority, Romans chapter 13. And he's setting those in authority, so it's all going to come to where it culminates to the coming of Jesus Christ. He's in control. The kingdom of God is going to rule and reign. And we are a part of that. And that brings me comfort. And there is a battle going on for the soul of our nation, no doubt about it. And the election is important. And the Supreme Court is important. And our leaders, we need to pray for them. And we need to pray for our president. We are told in Scripture to pray for our kings, for our leaders. Paul would write that, and Peter would write that, when Caesar Nero was in power. Caesar Nero was not a nice guy. He says that we are to pray for them. We are to pray for our nation. And the battle that's going on for the soul of our nation, and we see it throughout the world, is not going to be won in Washington. It's not going to be won in the Supreme Court. I'm not saying those things aren't important, but it's not going to be won there. It's going to be won by you and I getting on our knees and praying and looking for the coming of the Lord. And that brings me comfort, that he's in control, that he's going to come and rule and reign. I love this country. 
I love this country. I, I've been to places like Sudan and, and other places that when I get home, I'm so thankful to be here. And I believe that God established this nation to be used of him in wonderful, powerful ways. And we have. But I am also very concerned for our nation as well. That we are declining morally and spiritually. We've pushed God out of our government. We push God out of our courts. We push God out of our schools. And we see it more and more. Matter of fact, somebody was asking me this week, do you think that Christians are going to be persecuted as we get closer to the return of the Lord? I don't know the exact answer to that, but it very well could be. I pray for revival. I pray for a great awakening in this nation. But I also believe that the trend that we're on, that you and I as Christians standing on the truth of God's word and for Jesus Christ, we could very well see persecution come. To a greater degree as we get closer to the return of the Lord. So we need to be in prayer. We need to be praying for our nation because the hope of our nation is a great awakening that will happen. It's not what party is going to be in power. Again, I'm not saying those things aren't important. But the ultimate answer is going to be that there are hearts given over to Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That's the hope for our nation. That's the hope for the whole world. And so I want to make sure that we are giving truth to others. And yes, there are going to be those who are going to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But it also could mean that we are going to be persecuted more. And we need to be ready for that. And how do we become ready for that? What's our response? Well, I was asked that. You know, if persecution is going to come, how do we respond? Do we just hide in our homes and store up our guns and food and, and all of this? Do we go hide in the desert or make a bunker up in the mountains? What do we do? We do what the disciples did. That as they were brought before the Sanhedrin Council in Acts chapter 5, that they were beaten. They were cast into prison. They were told, you quit spreading your doctrine throughout this city. They couldn't even say the name of Jesus, the religious council. You stop preaching Jesus, what they were saying. You quit preaching the gospel. You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, mm -mm, not going to do that. We can't but testify what we have seen and heard. And the religious leaders were so frustrated, they, they, they beat them and let them go. And it tells us that they rejoice in the Lord, count it worthy to suffer for his namesake. And then they went daily throughout Jerusalem from house to house in the temple preaching the gospel in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm going to do. Throw me in jail, throw me in jail. You want to persecute for giving the gospel, then persecute. I pray that it doesn't come to that. I'm not anxious for it to happen, but if it does, what is going to be our response? We are here for such a time as this, and the Lord's going to come back. And he will deal with the nations, and judgment will come to, to this world. It's going to come, but this is the day of grace that we can give glad tidings of good news to others. May we stand for that. May we give that. May we pray for that. I want to give the gospel. I want to give the truth of God's word. That's why I'm committed to teaching, not just from the Bible, but through the Bible. So that you're equipped, too, to be able to minister to others. 
for us to be praying because uh, Jesus Christ is coming back. That's the good news. But in the meantime, we are to be about the business of our king. Um, and here the kings shall shut their mouths at him, the, the one who suffered for us. He's going to be the reigning Messiah. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they have not heard they shall consider. And who has believed our report, and to whom have the arm of the Lord been revealed? As we move into chapter 53, it speaks again of Jesus. This is an unbelievable chapter. Matter of fact, when you go to Acts chapter 8, you know the story of Philip, who is one of the first deacons. He's in Samaria, and he's preaching and revival breaks out and the Lord says okay Philip I want you to leave and I want you to go to the highway between Jerusalem and Gaza uh, and he didn't tell him what was going to happen but that's desert down there there's nobody down there so Philip goes he was obedient and there he meets an Ethiopian eunuch that's riding a chariot and he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53 as you read in Acts chapter 8 and Philip goes to him and the Ethiopian eunuch who was the head of the treasury of the queen of, of Ethiopia, Candace and he and here this eunuch is saying who's this speaking of? Is it speaking of the prophet or someone else? And so Philip was able to say it speaks of Jesus and preach Jesus who came and fulfilled Isaiah chapter 53 and that Ethiopian got saved, he was baptized, it is believed he would go back to Ethiopia and that's where the church would start in Ethiopia. There's a strong Christian base in Ethiopia at that time 2,000 years ago even as there is today. You know, we love it when we got a lot of people, you know, things were happening in Samaria, but then sometimes the Lord says, I want you to go to the desert and preach to this one person. And Philip did that. But if you ever have an opportunity to speak to someone who is Jewish, if you want to have them consider Jesus, this is a chapter that you take them to or Psalm 22 that David wrote a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. Take him to those chapters, to Zechariah chapter 12. Uh, probably telling them John 3.16 isn't going to mean a whole lot to them. It's a good verse, but take him to the Old Testament scriptures. Take him to these chapters. Just as it was the Ethiopian eunuch that was, um, that was saved because of Isaiah 53 and explained to him that it speaks of Jesus. So here, the people refused to listen to the prophets. Who has believed our report and who has the arm of the Lord revealed? Jesus quotes this in, in John chapter 12, speaking how the people didn't believe in him. You know, people do the same thing today, don't they? It breaks our hearts. That they don't believe the report that Jesus came and died for their sins. So we need to keep praying for them. Keep sharing with them. Keep having them see the reality of Jesus in us. And then for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. For he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. Not much is spoken of Jesus' childhood except for Luke chapter 12. Um, or Luke chapter 2, that is, when he was 12 years old, the story when they were at the feast and, and they left to go back to Nazareth and Joseph and Mary realized that he wasn't with them. 
So they went back to Jerusalem, searched for three days. I, I find it interesting that it was three days. And they found Jesus in the temple disputing with the scholars, amazing the scholars, the religious leaders. And Jesus said, don't you know that I'm to be about my father's business? Now, don't think that Mary and Joseph were irresponsible, you know, parents. And in those days when they would go to the feast, Nazareth was just a little village, probably a couple hundred people. They would travel in whole groups, large families and big groups. It was safer that way. It was dangerous to travel 2,000 years ago on roads. There would be robbers and, and um, you know, even wild dogs. So they traveled in groups for safety, and they're traveling in this group to the feast in Jerusalem, going back. They have to travel 60 miles. Can you imagine us all here going together down? to Denver, you know, kind of taking care of each other, watching out for each other. Well, they finally realize Jesus isn't here in, in the midst. So Joseph and Mary go back to, to find him. But that's all that is written about Jesus' childhood. Uh, as far as we know, he was raised in the carpenter shop of his father, Joseph, raised in Nazareth until he would go and begin his public ministry. We know from Luke's gospel when he went into the synagogue there in, in Nazareth and read from Isaiah, say, speaking of Messiah, and he said, today this saying is fulfilled, that they were so angry. They said, really, you're the Messiah? And, and this is blasphemy. We know who you are. You're Joseph and Mary's son. And we've seen you raised up here. We know you. And, and of course, he was rejected by his own people there in Nazareth. And they were going to throw him off a cliff. But Jesus just walked you know, right past them and then ended up going to Capernaum in the Sea of Galilee. That's where he spent most of his earthly ministry. But we don't know much about Jesus growing up except they knew him. He, you know, there are some records in, you know, uh, that, oh, you know, the Gospel of Thomas says that Jesus, you know, was showing off to his friends kind of like that all these stones, he turned them to little birds and they flew away or, or whatever. That's not true. How do we know that? Because in John chapter 2, the first miracle that Jesus performed was when he began his public ministry at the wedding feast at Cana. There are other New Age people that say that Jesus during that time went to India, you know, and you know, spoke to the New Age gurus and all of that, and they received the Christ consciousness. That's baloney. So Jesus here, growing up, and ordinary Jewish-looking man, it says that there is no form or comeliness. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't glowing you know, in the dark. He didn't have a halo over him. He didn't, you know, wasn't the Robert Redford looking kind of guy. You know, he was Jewish. He was, you know, dark hair, brown eyes, probably ordinary. Um, there is no description of Jesus physically. It is interesting in, in John chapter 8 that the religious leaders, when they were disputing with Jesus, they said, but you're not but 50 years old. Jesus was 30 years old at that time. So could it be that Jesus looked older than what he really was? They're saying, you're not but 50 years old. Jesus walked everywhere. I imagine that he had rough, rugged, calloused hands, calloused feet from walking everywhere. But there was no form or comeliness that we should desire him. Some say this, speaking of him on the cross, that, that the look away, ooh, his appearance marred than any other man. 
sometimes we focus on things that, you know, so much out there. Madison Avenue spends so much money advertising how we should look outwardly, that people would desire us to look good. I, I know that's a part of the world we live in, but please don't make that a priority. The inner beauty. Because to the Lord, he doesn't look at the outward appearance. Remember, he told Samuel that. He looks at the heart, the inner beauty. And we can spend so much time on looking, you know, this way externally. And, and of course, we want to look good at times and, and during the day. I understand that. But don't forget the inner beauty is more important. The Christ-likeness. So the question tonight, and maybe I'll just kind of end it on this, is what do they see in you? What do they see in me? Do they see the joy of the Lord in us? Do they see the love of Jesus Christ in us? I pray that they do. And it's something that the Lord's still working in me. Are they hearing truth coming from us? Is there uh, that spiritual beauty that is in our hearts and in our soul as we minister to others? Or is it we're grumping all day long? Or is it that we're involved in the office gossip and we're telling the dirty jokes, you know, with the guys or, you know, whatever it may be. Listen, is there a beauty in our hearts of the Lord? How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news where people can look at you and me and they can see that beauty coming from us and sharing with others. That's what they need to, to see. There's so much negativity that's all around us. It's just people are angry and err and uptight and, you know, critical and, and all of this. And people are grumpy and rude. May it not be said of us. May it be said of us that there's someone here that works with us or the neighbor that lives next to us, that there's something different about them because they're seeing the light and the love of Jesus Christ coming from us. You know, sometimes we think, you know, I'm just going to blast everybody at work you know, and be a Bible thumper. We give people the truth, but do they see love coming from you? Truth and love? Sometimes we think, oh, you know, I'm going to rail on them. Listen, love people. Love people. I've told this story before. See, one of the things when you've been pastoring a church for 20-some years, you start to run out of illustrations. So you probably have heard this, but I know there's some of you that are new, so hopefully this is for you. Remember the story of Jesus, the man who was blind? And he went up and he touched that man. And he said, what do you see? And he says, I see men as trees. So he touched them again. And then a the man could see clearly. I've read a few commentators that said, well, Jesus goofed on that miracle. Jesus didn't goof. And I think, why was that recorded by the Holy Spirit for us to read? Because we were blind and now we see, right? That's our testimony. The man who was born blind and, and Jesus healed him as he rubbed, you know, 
clay and his eyes told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. As we are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we come up seeing. We were blind. But sometimes we need another touch from the Lord, don't we? Sometimes we don't see people clearly. We see them as trees. And the Lord has to touch us again so we can see them the way that he wants us to see them. And maybe some of us here tonight, we see people as trees. I know I can at times. I get frustrated. I want to bark at them. You know, I want them to leave. <laughs> you know, they stump me. All the, you know. I see people as trees. I know it's bad. If that's the way that we are, may we ask the Lord, Lord, touch me again so I can see people the way that you see them. Because when Jesus went to that cross to die and allowed himself to be butchered and his body broken and pinned to that cross, he did it for them. And I know that agape love that he has for me is being worked in me and is still being worked in me and he's going to take for the rest of my life to continue to work that agape love in me to extend to others. But even as John would say in his epistle that we just got done studying, that we as Christians, that we have the light of Jesus Christ in us and the love of Jesus Christ as he abides in us, then we're to love our brothers and sisters. And we can kind of forget about that. At least I can. I'll speak for myself. And we get caught up in the gossip and we get caught up in the, you know, negativity. And we get caught up in the being critical and putting people down and I can't stand them. Lord, touch me again. So I can see people the way that you see them. Through your heart and through your love. So, Father, we thank you. Oh, Lord. This is such an incredible chapter and we're taking our time going through it. But Lord, there's so much that is here for us as we consider that Jesus came the first time as the suffering servant Messiah. It will come as the reigning Messiah the second time. And so Lord, we thank you that, that Lord, that we have glad tidings of good news given to us and that is the gospel and Lord we want to to not only believe the gospel but live the gospel and Lord I pray for us that the good news that we have that we would desire to give to others when you give us opportunity because it is the good news there's a lot of bad news around. The bad news is that we're all sinners separated from God. But Jesus Christ came to die for us on that cross. And we have the good news, the good news that Jesus loved us so much that he went to the cross for us. I do pray if there is anybody that is here that you've never come to the gospel I don't want to just be presumptuous because I know there's many out in the coffee shop and that you've never come to Jesus Christ, that he is your salvation. That's why Jesus came, to bring salvation to you. He went to the cross to die for your sins. He rose again. He proved that he's the son of God. He's alive 
And he says, come, come in faith. And as you believe that you need to be forgiven because you have sinned, just like all of us, and as you come to the cross of Calvary and ask for forgiveness, he will hear your prayer and he will save you. So if that means anything to anyone, maybe you're listening on live stream, that I want you to pray this prayer for salvation. That Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins and be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for going to the cross for me to give me hope. Forgive me, be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for saving me. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And if you did pray that prayer, we got a ministry team up front that I want you to come up and tell them that you made that decision. But listen, for the vast majority of us that are here, if we're cynical towards others, just negative, that you would touch us again here tonight, open up our eyes to see people the way that you see them. And maybe there are people that really cause difficulties to us or hurt us. Lord, work that agape love in us. We can't do it in our own flesh and our own energies. But to know and to understand the eternal perspective that you came to die and that's not your will for any should perish but come into repentance. And Lord, that we would see people differently. And knowing that they need Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we have a hope that Jesus is going to come and rule and reign. We pray for our nation. I thank you for this great nation. I thank you for our young men and women that are serving our nation in the military. I thank you for our first responders. Thank you for, Lord. I thank you for what we have and the freedoms that we have. And we pray for our president, that Lord, that you would touch his heart. That there would be in leadership there in Washington and in our own state and Denver and our own community, there'd be a turning to you, recognizing that we need you, Lord. There'd be turning back to you. And there'd be crying out from this nation, repenting from our sins. And there'd be a great awakening, a movement of your Holy Spirit in these last days. And Lord, that we would give the gospel. It's, it's being lost, that message. For it is the power of God to salvation. And we know that your coming is nigh. So we are here for such a time as this. And Lord, whatever happens, may we stand for righteousness and truth. And may we love others. I pray for our families. I pray that marriages would be strengthened. I, I pray that our children would walk with you and protect our young people. They are being pulled in so many different ways in deception. 
to the false promises of this world. That their hearts would be opened up to you and drawn to you. Lord, that we would love them and encourage them. Lord, I pray that you would just help us in the times where we're struggling or we're in need, knowing that you're our help and we can trust in you and rely on you. And may we be a people that continue growing in the word of God, that we can give a message of truth to others. So Lord, I thank you for tonight. I pray you bless everyone here as we go our way. And Again, keep us safe this weekend and we look forward to, to when we gather once again. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.